We need to notice that God doesn't answer some of Moses' accusations. He goes right to the thing of where Moses said, you haven't done anything. And he says, well, let me show you what I'm about to do. And that's what the Lord does with us. You know, fighting God doesn't work, but neither does pouting or stubborn accusations about his character. Those don't work. Because in the end, God's going to bring you right to the same place. He's going to do He says it with Moses, go. He says it to Elijah, go. And he's going to say the same thing to you. He's going to remind you of his word. He's going to remind you of his promise that he's got things under control and that he's going to call you to follow. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. So far in Exodus, we saw that God called Moses to lead the children of Israel out of their enslavement in Egypt. In chapter 5, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh with a proposition to let the Israelites go into the wilderness to worship. Pharaoh denied the request and made life harder for the Israelites by taking away the straw they used to build with. Moses was angry with God. It is here we join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. When we last saw Moses, things weren't going too well. (laughs) He finally gets to Egypt. He relays God's instructions to Pharaoh, and the guy responds by making things harder for Israel. And then the leadership of Israel responds by saying, some kind of deliverer you are. Hope God judges you for what you've done. And then they give him the left foot of fellowship. Left foot of fellowship? Supposed to give the right hand of... Never mind. And then Moses, in turn, he he doesn't do any better. He accuses God of doing nothing. That's where we left the end of chapter 5. Well, in chapter 6, we see God's response. And in it, we see a gentle, patient, and loving God who ignores the accusations and moves forward with his plans. So we see God make precious promises to the nation that he loves. May it remind us that God doesn't need helpers with their own ideas. He needs servants who rest in his faithfulness. So chapter 6, verse 1. And then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shall you see what I will do unto Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And God spoke unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not yet known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage wherein they were strangers." And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments, and I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you in unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a heritage." I am the Lord. Hmm. That whole passage of Scripture almost stands on its own. No comment almost necessary. And yet, as we dwell upon it and want to understand the significance of what's just happened here, there's a few things we need to notice. We need to notice that God doesn't answer some of Moses' accusations. Moses says, Lord, you have done evil to this people, and you've made a mistake in sending me. But God doesn't answer either of those. He ignores them completely. And he goes right to the thing of where Moses said, you haven't done anything. And he says, well, let me show you what I'm about to do. But I want to focus on that first part for a second, the fact that God ignores the other accusations. Have you ever hurled a desperate prayer of God in anger and then disappointed because he doesn't answer it? I think we've all had those moments. 
or you're frustrated, you don't understand what God's doing, it doesn't feel like he's there, and you hurl a desperate prayer towards him in anger. But God just seems to be quiet. I have found that God doesn't answer prayers that won't fix the problem. <laughs> like, you know, why did you send me? And, you know, I'm thinking God's probably going at that point, going over this again probably isn't going to help. You've done evil. No, I haven't. But convincing you of that right now is that's not really the problem here. What I need to do is continue to do my thing and let you watch and you'll know that I've not failed, I've not done evil, and I didn't make a mistake. God doesn't answer prayers that don't fix the problem, nor does God defend his character against my accusations. Neither does he squash me for my arrogance in making them. But in his mercy, he reminds me of the truth, and he moves to a solution. You remember Elijah? We think of Elijah, and we think of you know the fire being come down on the altar from the sky. You know, we think of all the, the magnificent things that he did. And yet, one of the most interesting stories is when he ran away from Jezebel. Look over at 1 Kings 19 with me real quick. I'm fascinated by this man because the Bible tells us that he's just like us. I think to myself, well, last I checked, I can't go out and make it not rain for three years. So I have a hard time relating to that. So I like these parts of the story because it does show that he's a man just like us. You know the story. Ahab tells Jezebel what happened to her prophets, and she sends him a note, like in school, you know, and basically says, if you're not dead by the morning, then, you know, so help me God, basically. And he runs. He stood up to 400 prophets of Baal, but he runs now. It says in verse 4 of chapter 19, but he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He goes all the way. Remember, he's ministering in the northern kingdom. He goes all the way south, past Beersheba, a day's journey from Beersheba. And he came, verse 4 says, and sat down under a juniper tree, and he prays this prayer. He requested for himself that he might die. For he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I'm not better than my father's. Maybe you've had a moment like that before where you're kind of done and you come to God and you say, I tried, it's enough. I tried, oh Lord, I did my best and it wasn't good enough. And he says, take my life for I'm not better than my father's. I'm not like Moses, I'm not like David, not like any of those people. I can't do this. Just kill me, I failed. And you know, I'm so glad God didn't answer that prayer. <laughs> Aren't you? I'm so glad God doesn't answer those prayers of mine when I'm hurt or I'm angry or I'm frustrated and I cry out to him in those feelings and those thoughts and he hears me out. He takes all the wrath I've got thrown my way at everybody and everything, you know, in my thoughts and in my hurts and in my pain. And he just loves me through it all. Instead, God preserved Elijah, even though he was still intent on running away. Look at verse five. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, Then an angel touched him and said unto him, Get up, eat, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baked on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and he laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. The journey is too great for you. You need more food. You can't just keep going like this. So he arose, and he did eat and drink. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights back to the work of God? No, he kept going south (laughs) unto Horeb, the Mount of God. He goes to Mount Sinai of all places. Talk about backsliding, (laughs) going all the way back to where we're at in Exodus, you know, all the way back there. As he came there unto a cave and lodged there, says, behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said unto him, what are you doing here, Elijah? 
You know, Elijah crawls up into this cave in Mount Sinai and he's just kind of chilling. I don't even know what he was thinking. Start over with God. I don't know. I don't know if he's just thinking it's over or, or I'm just, I'm done and, and I don't know where else to go. I'm not sure what Elijah's thinking. I just know he's having a bit of a pity party because he says here in verse 10, and I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and slain your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and now they seek my life to take it away. <laughs> you ever felt that way? I'm all alone, Lord. I can't do this. It's too hard. I'm so glad that when you know, God feeds him mercifully, even though he's running away, and even knowing that he's going to continue to run, he's still a runner at that point in time after he feeds him. I'm so glad that God didn't crush him for his stubbornness. God spoke the truth to him, we're going to see in a moment, and then he moved to a solution, one in which Elijah still had a part to play. So Elijah gives his little pity party and you know, explanation of why he's here. And so the Lord says, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. Okay, you're looking for a Sinai experience? Okay, I'll give you one, but that's not going to be your answer. Going back is not the answer, Elijah. Behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Talk about going back to Exodus. But notice here, what does it say? The Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire again, just like Exodus. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood in the entrance into the cave. So the Lord, he spoke to him again. He said, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you waiting for? What are you looking for? What are you trying to find? And he gives his pity party again. I've been very jealous of the Lord God of hosts. And the Lord says unto him, I'm not going to even answer that. Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you come, anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall you anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, shall you anoint to be the prophet in your place. And it shall come to pass that him that escapes the sword of Haziel shall Jehu slay. And him that escapes the sword of Jehu shall Elijah slay. I've got your back, Elijah. I'm going to take care of all this. And by the way, Yet I have left to me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. He says, Elijah, it's time to go. You're solving nothing here. And that's what the Lord does with us. You know, fighting God doesn't work, but neither does pouting or stubborn accusations about his character. Those don't work. Because in the end, God's going to bring you right to the same place. He's going to do that. He says it with Moses, go. He says it to Elijah, go. And he's going to say the same thing to you. He's going to remind you of his word. He's going to remind you of his promise that he's got things under control and he's going to call you to follow. And if you run, he'll gently pursue you and repeat the process again. And if you run, he'll gently pursue you and repeat the process again. Because he loves you and he loves everyone around you. And you have a part to play in how he shows that. So Moses, with all his accusations, the Lord doesn't answer them. Instead, he moves right to the solution. He reminds him of his promise. He speaks the truth to him again, and then he moves to a solution. God starts off here by saying, Moses, you've seen what Pharaoh's done, and you've seen how your efforts have failed. You tried to help me out. That didn't work. But now it's time for you to see what I will do. He says, now shall you see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go, and with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. Pharaoh had thrown down the gauntlet when he said, who is the Lord? God says, well, sir, I'm about to give you an education. <laughs> I'm about to explain exactly who I am to you. 
He says, when he understands that, with a strong hand will he let you go. You know, God tells Moses that by the time I'm through with Pharaoh, the ruler will want them out, as want you guys out as vehemently as he initially refused. He's going to drive you out of his land. And having therefore explained that to Moses, God reminds him of the truth. He reminds him of his word, and he takes him all the way back to Genesis. He says, and God spoke unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord, or Jehovah, and I appeared unto Abraham, and unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not yet known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers or foreigners. God Almighty is El Shaddai, the God who is all-powerful. If you read in Genesis 17, 1, God introduces himself to Abraham as God Almighty, El Shaddai. You know, Moses accused God of doing nothing that he promised. He says, and neither have you delivered your people at all. But God says, I've already been doing what I've promised. He says, I remembered my promise to Abraham. Verse 5, I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my promise. He reminds him of the promise he made to them, and then he goes, and I remembered it. I haven't forgotten it. You know, God says, I, I remembered my promise, and in regards to it, I've already started to work. See, Moses accused God of doing evil. But God didn't lie to Moses or to the people of Israel. They had forgotten what God promised Abraham. Turn to Genesis 15 with me. Things are going exactly like God said they would. Verses 13 through 16. And he, that's the Lord, in verse 13, he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them. And they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward they shall come out with great substance. But you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall come here again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Has anything gone off the chart here? Things have gone exactly as God said up to this point, haven't they? So the question is, why wouldn't the rest be done too? God would have every right at this point to just turn to Moses and the people of Israel and say, I told you that this would be bad, and I told you that I would come through. What's the problem? And yet God in his mercy, as he reminds of this old promise, he makes a new one too. Not only does he remind Moses of his past promise, but beginning here in chapter 6, verse 6, God makes a new promise, a specific promise. See, something has changed now. Prior to this, you had Abraham, Isaac, and then you had Jacob. So you had these patriarchs, these leaders. But now, what do you have? You don't have anything like that. I mean, Moses, but he's not directly in that lineage. He's a son of Levi, but he's not necessarily the patriarch per se. There is no patriarch per se. There is no leader of the family anymore. So who's God going to make the promise to now? Well, God does something new here. He makes a specific promise, not to Moses or some other individual, but he makes it to the entire nation, a promise that encompasses the next five books of the Old Testament. Verse six, wherefore, in light of this, The promise I made, I have remembered it, I am working. Say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord. And notice all the I wills here. And I will bring you out from under the bondage of the Egyptians. And I will rid you out of their bondage. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for people. And I will be to you to God. And and you shall know that I am the Lord your God which brings you from out out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you in unto the land which, concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a heritage. I am the Lord. That's a lot of I wills. 
You know, you said, I haven't done anything, Moses. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I will do these things. And really, they all center around three promises here. And the promise, number one, is I will bring you out of Egypt. In verse 6 here, he says, Say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord. That's the same phrase he starts off the conversation with Moses. He says, I am the Lord. This is important because he's not saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is that. But he's not saying that to them now because now he's saying, I'm going to be your God. That's in the past. I'm telling you now how I will be known to you because I'm going to do a new work in your midst. And then God makes these precious promises to them just like he did with their forefathers. And he starts off by saying, I will bring you out of Egypt. I will bring you out from under the burdens, the forced labor of the Egyptians. And I will rid you out of their bondage. I'm going to rescue you out of danger and make you safe. I'm going to rescue you out of danger and make you safe from this slavery. See, Egypt had a claim on all of those people. And God tells them, they'll have no claim on you anymore. You'll be safe from them. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. The word redeem means to purchase back that which had been sold. They had not sold themselves. We do that with our sin. We know the picture of the type. But they had come under bondage through deceit and subtlety is what the word tells us. And they became slaves owned by the Egyptians, less than animals. But God says, I'm going to purchase you back. I'm going to purchase you back. You've come under sale to them, but I'm going to purchase you back to myself. And I will do so with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. You know, the Israelites would be used to seeing all the Egyptian deities with their stretched out arms. You know, you see a lot of the sphinxes, their arms are in front or on their, their knees or things like that. Their arms are outstretched. They would be very familiar with that sight. And yet God says, you know, and, and the reason it was that way is because the stretched out arms signified their irresistible might and power. You know, these strong, powerful deities. But God God says, I will show you what irresistible power and might really looks like with my stretched out arm and with great judgments. One of the cool things when we go through here, I don't know for sure, so I'm giving you my opinion here, which is worth zero. But in the New Testament, Paul says this. He goes, don't you know that he that eats meat offered to idols is eating meat that's been sacrificed to a demon, right? He actually says there's an entity behind that. And I've always wondered, like, what does that mean? You know, is there an entity like a wicked spirit or a spiritual force that's behind idolatry, I wouldn't be shocked at all if that was the case. So it's interesting because God, on many occasions throughout these next three or four books of the Old Testament, he's going to say that he's executing judgment or he executed judgment upon the gods of Egypt. It's almost like, you know, God is saying, I'm going to war, man. I'm going to show these guys what's up because he lays them low. When we get to the plagues, we're going to see that every plague is specifically designed to show God's superiority over Egypt's so-called gods. You know, for example, they worship the Nile. It's going to be, he's going to turn it into blood. It's like he killed their God. God's dead. He's bleeding. He's got nothing left. No more life-giving power. Every one of those plagues are going to go that until it consummates with the very idea of Pharaoh himself, who is a God, and he can't even have the power to rescue and keep his own firstborn son. God says, I'm going to triumph over every one of Egypt's so-called gods. And in the end, this will show that Pharaoh himself is no god, but a man who, like all men, must eventually bow the knee. He says, I will bring you out of Egypt. Verse 7, promise number 2. He says, I will have a relationship with you. He says, I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a god. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, your God, which brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. 
Prior to this, Israel was a foreign people in a foreign land. No deity owned them. They had no one that they could look to for help in the Egyptian pantheon. They were slaves, the property of man and less than even some animals with no worth to any God. But now, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe promises that he will be their champion, that he will be their God. Do you understand now what it means? I mean, in the New Testament where it talks about how, how we are a chosen out people. First Peter chapter two, verse nine. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. We are pretty peculiar, aren't we? It means we're a set apart people or especially you know, chosen out people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God. You know, to think that he owns me, that he's, he looks to me and he says, you're mine. I, I wouldn't pick me. But he's not ashamed to call us brethren. From the beginning, God wanted a relationship with man, and it's no different here with Israel, and it's no different now with us. In Hebrews 2, verses 10 and 11, it says to us that he came, he dwelt among us, he took on our flesh. It says, for it became him, for whom are all things, God made everything for him. By whom are all things, he made everything. In bringing many sons to glory, that's you and me. It became him to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, God, the Father, speaking, says something about his people. He says, referring to these you know, faithful men that, that by faith did these things, he says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them. They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They didn't care that they didn't, they didn't receive the fullness of those promises. And the writer says, for they that say such things declare plainly, openly, that they seek a country looking for something else. What is it? And truly, if they had been mindful of the country from whence they came out of, the slavery, the pit where they were, well, they might have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And because of that, God's not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. <laughs> you know, I pictured my entrance into heaven. I'd be like, hey, Jesus, Jesus. And he's like, oh, no, you know, oh, no. Peter, Paul, can you, can you take care of this guy? You know, that's how I picture it. I don't understand why he would look at me and be happy. I don't know why he would look at me and, and think, you know, oh, awesome. My, you're here, my bride. Let me, let me introduce you to dad. You know, I don't, I don't get that. I'm too acquainted with what's in here. I don't get it. I don't get it why it says that he's going to present me faultless, but not even that. Faultless before his throne with great joy, the scripture says. Can you fathom that? Yeah. I'm so excited to introduce my kids and my bride to people. These are my kids. They're awesome. They're crazy. They're cool. They're nuts. I love them. You know, this is my beautiful bride. The best thing that ever happened to me. Jesus would do that for me? That's a pretty good deal. I'll take it. Don't deserve it, but I'll take it. And there's no other country I'd rather seek then. <laughs> so what does it matter? It doesn't work out the way I'd like it to. Oh, well, <laughs> someday, I don't even know what that'll be like to see him, to touch him, to hear him speak the words himself. 
his own voice. That's worth it. It's worth it. God keeps his promises, even when the situation looks impossible. He is not ashamed to be called our God, as he calls us his people. We are his, and he is ours. No one can take that away from us. Should you have questions about anything, or would like prayer concerning today's message, or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.